From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now, in our 17th year on the air, and still the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. Let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. And our topic this evening is important to all of us, even those among us who don't have much of it at all. Hair. Every generation has their preference for not only their own cohorts, but strong feelings also about the next junior and the senior generation styles. Remember the 60s? That's just one aspect of hair we'll talk about this evening, but going so much deeper, my special guest is author Kurt Stend, whose book, Hair, A Human History, tells us details we never really think about. When the Westerners went to China in the 1600s and introduced themselves for trade, the Chinese weren't quite certain that the Westerners were human because they were so hairy. So stay with us for the full story of hair yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right after the news. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. I'm Phil Marriage, your host, and our topic this evening is hair. Normally, I have three guests for our topics, as you know, one of them from the older, middle, and younger generations. But for this topic, I have chosen to invite author Kurt Stinn, whose recent book, Hair, A Human History, gives us an even deeper historical understanding of hair. Dr. Kurt Sten has over 30 years of expertise studying hair. He was professor of pathology and dermatology at Yale University School of Medicine and for 10 years the director of skin biology at Johnson & Johnson. Most recently, though, founding and serving as chief scientific officer for a biotech startup focusing on hair follicle regeneration. He joins us from Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. Sten, welcome to our program this evening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. While there are many social aspects of hair that we're all familiar with and like to talk about, I'd like to save most of that discussion to the last portion of our hour here today and instead begin with your historical focus on the history of human era, which is what I found so interesting in your book, its impact on humanity. So let me begin with the very first question I saw in your book that kind of stuck out to me and it probably is obvious to just about anybody is, why in the world do we and other animals even have hair? Where, where does it come from? That's a wonderful question, a very basic question. Actually, hair is not unique to mammals, but the type of hair that a mammal has is characteristic. Hair is found on plants and hair is found on insects. Hair is found even on, on some fish. Some hair structures are found. But the important structure in, in humans is a multicellular, made of multicells, and it covers the body. So, so the, the original hair could have been a sensory organ in the very early mammal sensory organ, or it could have been a protective structure, just a little filament. But with time, it got thicker and thicker, and as it became thicker, it served more and more of a protection for the animal against the elements, a protection against heat, of cold, of trauma. And also, at the same time, hair serves as a sensory structure so that with hair, you can feel things better than without hair. There's a study done on human arm where the authors compared the subject's sensitivity to an insect if the arm was shaved or not. And if the arm was not shaved, the subject perceived the insect earlier than if he had been shaved. What was that bug? I remember reading in the book uh, what the bug was. Bed bug. I don't know if I would be able to detect a bed bug. The hair is on the skin. The hair is kind of a little sensory organ. A very good example of the whiskers of a mouse, and the whiskers are hairs. And the whisker of a mouse, when the mouse is traveling around in the dark, as the mouse approaches a stone, his, his nose is spared from the stone because the whiskers, which are very sensitive, senses the stone before the nose does. 
so hair is a sensory structure in that in that sense. Go back a little bit, if you would, then, uh, Kirk, to where hair comes from. How does it even develop? So the top of the skin is made of one type of cell, and those cells form a bump which grow down into the deep skin. And once it grows to a certain level, the central portion of this cylinder develops a, a shaft, and the shaft is the hair that grows up out of the surface of the skin. So it grows from the deep skin outward. And very important point about the hair follicle is that it's made of multiple cells. Many cells are put together, and the cells, the interaction of the cells are very complicated, and so understanding it all and, and being able to handle and treat diseases of hair are difficult just because of the complexity of the many cells and, and its, its control of its growth. One of the points I want to try to make in the book, the hairs I'm talking about only occur in mammals, and mammals are animals that feed their babies with milk. They deliver their babies not an egg, but as a, as a free-living organism, and they have hair. So these are, are, are mammals. The point is that all mammals have hair, and hairs are exactly alike, except they differ in size and shape and curl and color. And the reason for writing the book, as I, as I write in the very beginning, is I was, I had a, I had a, I was having a, a haircut. And my, I, my barber said, hey, doc, what do you do? And I said, I do research on hair. And he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe people can't do research on hair. And he sees hair as very one way of looking at hair, and that is the hair that grows on your head. But there's hair, animals have different hair, but there, there are many people who work with hair, and these, these stakeholders look at hair very differently. In fact, People who work with hair have different names for hair. Some people call it a bristle. Other people call it a hair or a fiber. So, so hairs are the same, but they differ in a, in a quantitative way in the animal kingdom. Now, that's true in your body as well. There are different kinds of hairs. The eyebrow hair is one kind of hair. It's very short and very firm, and the eyelash is curled but also hard. And the hair on the top of your head and the hair on the side of your head are different. The hairs on the top of your head are hormone-sensitive androgen sensitive. The ones on the side of the head are not. The body hairs are usually curled. They're soft and curled. So from sight to sight, hairs, hairs differ in color, in curl, in character, in strength, and length. A question that came to me as I was reading the first part of the book there is, uh, why aren't we as hairy now as we may have been in the past? Right. That is, that's another super question. Originally, the earliest mammals had a lot of hair, and this had to do with temperature control. It was very important. The earliest mammal was very small, and he lived in an environment of a lot of reptiles and dinosaurs. Now, these guys didn't have hair. They didn't need it because their body temperature was responsive to the environment. So when the, when the, body, when the environment was warm, they ran around. When the environment got cold, they slept. And so the turtle does that today. The turtle is the same kind of poikilothermic or animal that gets his, his body temperature from the environment. The turtle sleeps in the cold water during the night, and then he floats up in the morning, can't move very much, he lies on a lily leaf, and gets warmed up, and then he goes about his, his job. Now, the mammal has something. The mammal has a very consistent temperature. His temperature is regular all day long, the same temperature. So he can hunt at night, and he can sleep at the day. He can hunt and sleep whenever he wants to. That's not, not The reptile can't do that. The early mammal was able actually to hunt the sleeping reptile, so it was a great advantage. At any rate, the, at, in the cold environment or the hot environment, the mammal is covered with a thick fur. Fur is really thick. In a, a current-day mouse, there's about a 40,000 number of hairs per area about the tip of your finger, while in the human, it's 400 to 500, very, very much less. So the, the early mammal had lots of hairs to protect him from the, from the heat or cold. Now, there came a time with evolution 
that the brain developed. And with the brain development, hair was too much because the body was kept too warm in a hot environment. So in the hot environment of Africa, where humans evolved, if the body got, normally the body was 98, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, but if the temperature got to 104, he had a heat stroke, 107, he was killed. So man had to develop had to get rid of his coat in order to protect his temperature-sensitive brain. The brain is the thing that is affected by higher temperature. And in order to evolve his brain, he had to have a less dense coat. And with time, as a coat left, his brain got bigger. And he also was able to develop a means of sweating so that he could cool himself by water evaporation. We're talking about several million years ago. Speaking of the other animals that do this particular thing, I'm wondering why we don't, and that is shed hair. Dogs, cats, they all seem to shed. Why don't we shed? We do shed. Actually, we do. So the hair follicle goes through a cycle, a cycle of growth, resting, and then shedding and regrowing. The difference between your pet and the human is that the pet hair follicles cycle all at the same time. So they grow at the same time. They rest at the same time and shed at the same time. So when they shed, there's a lot of shedding. There's a lot of hair being released. Human hair follicles cycle independent of one another. So they're, they're higgly-piggly in terms of when they're growing, when they're resting, when they're cycling. So you don't recognize it. But if you walk around your house, you'll find, if you don't have pets, you'll find there's still hair on the floor because it's shedding from your own body, from your scalp, in the shower, in the body, in your hair, off your arm, or wherever else there's hair, hair does shed. So it, it, we do shed hair, too. It has to. So the question is, so how, do, how come we cycle? How, why, does the, why does the hair follicle go through a cycle? For, the, for animals, it's, there's a good reason. One is that the animal, by cycling, um, if the hair is worn out, you get new hair by throwing off the old one. If the hair is dirty, you can clean your, clean your surface by getting new ones. And also for animals, you can change the coat so that at winter, you will grow a thicker hair or a different colored hair. In Minnesota, you may want to have a white hair if you're a weasel than a black hair. And so you can, you can adapt the surface color. Humans don't have this much adaptivity to the hair. I mean, we don't recognize that the hair changes over the year as it does in an animal. Human cycles are much longer than an animal. The hair on the head grows from two to six years, so that's very long. Two to six years? The hair on the, on the head grows two to six years, and therefore you can have a very long hair. That's true on the mane of a horse, too, or the tail of a horse. It grows for a long time there. On the back of a mouse, it, the hair growth is uh, three weeks. Hair grows to three weeks and rests for depending when. The hair in, on animals in the wild, hair grows for a short time, so the hair is usually not very long, but very thick. And then it rests. Now, you want the hair to rest in winter because the, the mouse or the animal in the wild doesn't, may not have an, a protein source, a means of eating, may not eat as well. And so you don't want, and hair is a very protein-rich material, and you need a lot of energy to grow hair. So you, so you want the hair to rest for a long period, and that's what the hair follicle does. It rests for a long period for a mouse over the winter and then starts growing again in, in or, or other wild animals and then starts growing again in the spring. Hair grows very fast. Now, my hair, I started growing it about four or five years ago. I just said, I'm going to let it grow. And mine is about halfway down my back. Will mine sort of never get much longer than that? That is very impressive because usually middle-aged people, the hair does not grow that long. Usually you get older, your hair does not grow, often does not grow that long. So you're, you're a pretty impressive guy, pretty impressive guy. Well, my that, wife thought I should. She said, I think you ought to let your hair grow. So I did, and there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, you mentioned a few minutes ago about losing hair. Is there a general rule of thumb about how 
many hairs you can lose a day or to, before you get worried? Usually, usually a clinician says no more than 100 hairs a day you're, you're shedding from your scalp. Usually, and if you're losing more, then there could be a problem. And the increased hair loss occurs in, in people who are low in iron. They shed their hair earlier, and then the hair is not as long, of course. Or, or it can be due to some other disease. Sometimes uh, one person, the first sim- symptoms of a disease may be hair loss, and doctors have to be aware of that. The problem with going bald is that the hair follicle, for an unknown reason still, converts from a big structure to a very small structure. It still forms a hair shaft, but the hair shaft, which is the filament, I'm using the word shaft for the filament, the thing that sticks up, but the hair shaft itself is very, very tiny. In fact, it can be microscopic, tiny, thin, and you see it in a microscope. You know, so the hair follicles get very, very small, but we don't understand why that occurs, why there's that conversion, but it's dependent on androgen. That's another interesting study, that the androgen study. So James Hamilton thought that maybe hormones play a role in, in male pattern balding. And so Hamilton, this is this is a long time, it was early early 30s, the 20s or 30s, conducted an experiment. He found 104 men who had been castrated. And this was in Connecticut. In the group that had been castrated before adolescence, they had no secondary male characteristics. Their voice was high, their shoulders were narrow, they didn't have a beard, and they never went bald. And so he took this group of men and he injected male hormone into them. And lo and behold, those in that group who had a family history of balding went bald. The study has been, is a classic study. It's always quoted as evidence that male pattern balding is a hormone problem as well as a genetic problem. They assured me at the government, Connecticut, that, that, that there's no law for it or against it. People who had been treated this way at that era. That was an era when, when um, the government took in their hands how to change people's uh, habits and what they did. And it's a, not a, distur- it's a disturbing uh, fact of our history. We're talking about hair here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow with my special guest, author Kurt Sten, whose recent book, Hair, A Human History, gives us an even deeper historical understanding of hair, as I'm sure you're hearing now. We'll continue right after this short break. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. I'm Phil Marriage, your host, and our topic this evening is hair. Normally, I have three guests for our topics, as you know, one of them from the older, middle, and younger generations. But for this topic, I have chosen to invite author Kurt Sten, whose recent book, Hair, A Human History, gives us an even deeper historical understanding of hair. Dr. Kurt Sten has over 30 years of expertise studying hair. He was professor of pathology and dermatology at Yale University School of Medicine and for 10 years the director of skin biology at Johnson & Johnson. Most recently, though, founding and serving as chief scientific officer for a biotech startup focusing on hair follicle regeneration. He joins us from Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. Sten, welcome to our program this evening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. While there are many social aspects of hair that we're all familiar with and like to talk about, I'd like to save most of that discussion to the last portion of our hour here today and instead begin with your historical focus on the history of human era, which is what I found so interesting in your book, its impact on humanity. So let me begin with the very first question I saw in your book that kind of stuck out to me and it probably is obvious to just about anybody is, why in the world do we and other animals even have hair? Where, do, where does it come from? That's a wonderful question, a very basic question. Actually, hair is not unique to to mammals, but the type of hair that a mammal has is characteristic. Hair is found on plants and hair is found on insects. Hair is found even on, on some fish. Some hair structures are found. But the important structure in, in humans is a multicellular, made of multicells, and it covers the body. So, so the, the original hair 
could have been a sensory organ in the very early mammal sensory organ, or it could have been a protective structure, just a little filament. But with time, it got thicker and thicker, and as it became thicker, it served more and more of a protection for the animal against the elements, a protection against heat, of cold, of trauma. And also, at the same time, hair serves as a sensory structure so that with hair, you can feel things better than without hair. There's a study done on human arm where the authors compared the subject's sensitivity to an insect if the arm was shaved or not. And if the arm was not shaved, the subject perceived the insect earlier than if he had been shaved. What was that bug? I remember reading in the book uh, what the bug was. Bed bug. I don't know if I would be able to detect a bed bug. The hairs on the skin, the hair is kind of a little sensory organ. A very good example of the whiskers of a mouse, and the whiskers are hairs. And the whisker of a mouse, when the mouse goes traveling around the dark, as the mouse approaches a stone, his, his nose is spared from the stone because the whiskers, which are very sensitive, senses the stone before the nose does. So hair is a sensory structure in that, in that sense. Go back a little bit, if you would, then, uh, Kurt, to where hair comes from. How does it even develop? So the top of the skin is made of one type of cell, and those cells form a bump which grow down into the deep skin. And once it grows to a certain level, the central portion of this cylinder develops a, a shaft, and the shaft is the hair that grows up out of the surface of the skin. So it grows from the deep skin outward. And very important point about the hair follicle is that it's made of multiple cells. Many cells are put together, and the cells, the interaction of the cells are very complicated, and so understanding it all and, and being able to handle and treat diseases of hair are difficult just because of the complexity of the many cells and, and its, its control of its growth. One of the points I want to try to make in the book, the hairs I'm talking about only occur in mammals, and mammals are animals that feed their babies with milk. They deliver their babies not in an egg, but as a, as a free-living organism, and they have hair. So these are, are, are mammals. The point is that all mammals have hair, and hairs are exactly alike, except they differ in size and shape and curl and color. And the reason for writing the book, as I, as I write in the very beginning, is I was, I had a, I had a, I was having a, a haircut. And my, I, my barber said, hey, doc, what do you do? And I said, I do research on hair. And he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe people can't do research on hair. And he sees hair as very one way of looking at hair, and that is the hair that grows on your head. But there's hair. Animals have different hair. But there, there are many people who work with hair, and these, these stakeholders look at hair very differently. In fact, People who work with hair have different names for hair. Some people call it a bristle. Other people call it a hair or a fiber. So, so hairs are the same, but they differ in a, in a quantitative way in the animal kingdom. Now, that's true in your body as well. There are different kinds of hairs. The eyebrow hair is one kind of hair. It's very short and very firm. And the eyelash is curled but also hard. And the hair on the top of your head and the hair on the side of your head are different. The hairs on the top of your head are hormone-sensitive androgen sensitive. The ones on the side of the head are not. The body hairs are usually curled. They're soft and curled. So from sight to sight, hairs, hairs differ in color, in curl, in character, in strength, and length. A question that came to me as I was reading the first part of the book there is, uh, why aren't we as hairy now as we may have been in the past? Right. That is, that's another super question. Originally, the earliest mammals had a lot of hair, and this had to do with temperature control. It was very important. The earliest mammal was very small, and he lived in an environment of a lot of reptiles and dinosaurs. Now, these guys didn't have hair. They didn't need it because their body temperature 
was responsive to the environment. So when the when the body when the environment was warm, they ran around. When the environment got cold, they slept. And so the turtle does that today. The turtle is the same kind of poikilothermic or animal that gets his his body temperature from the environment. The turtle sleeps in the cold water during the night and then he floats up in the morning, can't move very much, he lies on a lily leaf and gets warmed up and then he goes about his his job. Now the mammal has something the mammal has a very consistent temperature. His temperature is regular all day long, the same temperature. So he can hunt at night and he can sleep at the day. He can hunt and sleep whenever he wants to. That's not, not, the reptile can't do that. The early mammal was able actually to hunt the sleeping reptile. So it was a great advantage. At any rate, the, at, in the cold environment or the hot environment, the mammal is covered with a thick fur. Fur is really thick. In a, a current day mouse, there's about a 40,000 number of hairs per area about the tip of your finger. While in the human, it's 400 to 500, very, very much less. So the, the early mammal had lots of hairs to protect him from the, from the heat or cold. Now, there came a time with evolution that the brain developed. And with the brain development, hair was too much because the body was kept too warm in a hot environment. So in the hot environment of Africa, where humans evolved, if the body got, normally the body was 98, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, but if the temperature got to 104, he had a heat stroke, 107, he was killed. So man had to develop, had to get rid of his coat in order to protect his temperature-sensitive brain. The brain is the thing that is affected by higher temperature. And in order to evolve his brain, he had to have a less dense coat. And with time, as a coat left, his brain got bigger. And he also was able to develop a means of sweating so that he could cool himself by water evaporation. We're talking about several million years ago. Speaking of the other animals that do this particular thing, I'm wondering why we don't, and that is shed hair. Dogs, cats, they all seem to shed. Why don't we shed? We do shed. Actually, we do. So the hair follicle goes through a cycle, a cycle of growth, resting, and then shedding and regrowing. The difference between your pet and the human is that the pet hair follicles cycle all at the same time. So they grow at the same time, they rest at the same time, and shed at the same time. So when they shed, there's a lot of shedding. There's a lot of hair being released. Human hair follicles cycle independent of one another. So they're, they're higgly-piggly in terms of when they're growing, when they're resting, when they're cycling. So you don't recognize it. But if you walk around your house, you'll find, if you don't have pets, you'll find there's still hair on the floor because it's shedding from your own body, from your scalp, in the shower, in the body, in your hair, off your arm, or wherever else there's hair, hair does shed. So it, it, we do shed hair, too. It has to. So the question is, so how, do, how come we cycle? How, why, does the, why does the hair follicle go through a cycle? For, the, for animals, it's, there's a good reason. One is that the animal, by cycling, um, if the hair is worn out, you get new hair by throwing off the old one. If the hair is dirty, you can clean your, clean your surface by getting new ones. And also for animals, you can change the coat so that at winter, you will grow a thicker hair or a different colored hair. In Minnesota, you may want to have a white hair if you're a weasel than a black hair. And so you can, you can adapt the surface color. Humans don't have this much adaptivity to the hair. I mean, we don't recognize that the hair changes over the year as it does in an animal. Human cycles are much longer than an animal. The hair on the head grows from two to six years, so that's very long. Two to six years? The hair on the, on the head grows two to six years, and therefore you can have a very long hair. That's true on the mane of a horse, too, or the tail of a horse. It grows for a long time there. On the back of a mouse, it, the hair growth is uh, three weeks. Hair grows to three weeks and rests for depending when. 
the hair in, on animals in the wild, hair grows for a short time, so the hair is usually not very long, but very thick. Mm. And then it rests. Now, you want the hair to rest in winter because the, the mouse or the animal in the wild doesn't, may not have an, a, a protein source, a means of eating, may not eat as well. And so you don't want, and hair is a very protein-rich material, and you need a lot of energy to grow hair. So you, so you want the hair to rest for a long period, and that's what the hair follicle does. It rests for a long period for a mouse over the winter and then starts growing again in, in or, or other wild animals and then starts growing again in the spring. Hair grows very fast. Now, my hair, I started growing it about four or five years ago. I just said, I'm going to let it grow. And mine is about halfway down my back. Will mine sort of never get much longer than that? That is very impressive because usually middle-aged people, the hair does not grow that long. Usually you get older, your hair does not grow, often does not grow that long. So you're, you're a pretty impressive guy, pretty impressive guy. Well, my that, wife that's... thought I should. She said, I think you ought to let your hair grow. So I did, and there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, you mentioned a few minutes ago about losing hair. Is there a general rule of thumb about how many hairs you can lose a day or to before you get worried? Usually, usually the clinician says no more than 100 hairs a day you're shedding from your scalp. Usually, and if you're losing more, then there could be a problem. And the increased hair loss occurs in, in people who are low in iron. They shed their hair earlier, and then the hair is not as long, of course. Or, or it can be due to some other disease. Sometimes uh, one person, the first sim- symptoms of a disease may be hair loss, and doctors have to be aware of that. The problem with going bald is that the hair follicle, for an unknown reason still, converts from a big structure to a very small structure. It still forms a hair shaft, but the hair shaft, which is the filament, I'm using the word shaft for the filament, the thing that sticks up, but the hair shaft itself is very, very tiny. In fact, it can be microscopic, tiny, thin, and you see it in a microscope. You know, so the hair follicles get very, very small, but we don't understand why that occurs, why there's that conversion, but it's dependent on androgen. That's another interesting study, that the androgen study. So James Hamilton thought that maybe hormones play a role in, in male pattern balding. And so Hamilton, this is this is a long time, it was early early thirties, the twenties or thirties, conducted an experiment. He found hundred and four men who had been castrated. And this was in Connecticut. In the group that had been castrated before adolescence, they had no secondary male characteristics. Their voice was high, their shoulders were narrow, they didn't have a beard, and they never went bald. And so he took this group of men and he injected male hormone into them and lo and behold those in that group who had a family history of balding went bald. The study has been, is a classic study. It's always quoted as evidence that male pattern balding is a hormone problem as well as a genetic problem. They assured me at the government, Connecticut, that, that, that no law for it or against it. People who had been treated this way at that era. That was an era when, when um, the government took in their hands how to change people's uh, habits and what they did. And it's a, not a, distur- it's a disturbing uh, fact of our history. We're talking about hair here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow with my special guest, author Kurt Sten, whose recent book, Hair, A Human History, gives us an even deeper historical understanding of hair, as I'm sure you're hearing now. We'll continue right after this short break. If you've been with us through the hour, our topic today, here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, is hair. I'm Phil Marriage, your host, along with my special guest, author Kurt Sten, whose recent book, Hair, A Human History, tells us the complete story of hair. A lot of stuff in there. In our remaining time, let's focus on some of the social aspects of our generations, some of the things we've endured regarding hair. And I want to start with something I sort of alluded to a little while ago when I mentioned my hair. Again, I'm going to be 69 this uh, as the year goes on here, and it was but I think it was about four years ago, my wife said, I think you ought to let your hair grow, which I had never 
in my entire life had. It was always what I call a number five, where you get the the electric uh, clipper things and you put the number five deal on it and you buzz around your head and it's short. That was what I was, a number five for all my life. But then I started letting my hair grow. What I noticed was the first time having prejudicial things said about the way I looked, the way I was, what type of person I was, based on my hair length. And I'll, I'll confess this, and which is nothing really to confess, really, because you know, I'm not trying to pass any judgment. I, but I've never been drunk a day in my life. I've never used drugs at all in my life. I've never smoked marijuana. I've never smoked cigarettes. But you'd be the surprised that the number of people, when my hair started to get long over my shoulders, began to judge me in ways that I had never thought possible as it related to myself. So that's my question to you, uh, Kurt, is what about hair and historical prejudice? It's real. Hair has very important messages, both on the body and off the body. Hair sends messages as well. And the messages are societal, culturally dependent. And in order for a message to be effectively sent, the person who wears the hair, constructed the hairdo, has to communicate with the person who understands that. So I think your question relates to the messages that hair sends. And different societies have different Different message. Now, styles change. Styles are the short-term presentation of hair. Now, hair can only do so many things with hair, after all. You can make it grow long and curl it and color it. Hair has played a, a role in, in human communication in all, all sorts of ways. And one of the really interesting current uh, ways of men wearing hair is, is, is cutting the hair, all the hair off their head. This is a, yes. is a kind of a paradox, not a contradiction, because usually in earlier culture, when the hair is cut off the head, it's either, it's either has been a, a, a punishment or an illness. Or sometimes it's a religious as well. But to think it's something beautiful is, some, is really new. And in the last two decades, as, as men, modern men are shaving their hair, men who are bald or not bald, are shaving all the hair off their head. And it's been received very positively. An objective study at the University of Pennsylvania recently has shown that when, when bald heads are showed to the same group of subjects with that same heads covered with hair, the subjects choose the bald as being positive and being people who are positive, dominant, more likely to be successful and the haired one, which is a real confusing thing when you consider the history of hair. And that's, that's hard for, for me to understand when I look at the history of hair. It, it's important to realize that, that one construct of hair is that, that in order for hair to be, be really dramatic, it has, somebody else has to take care of it. In the African, African cultures, it needs a second person to, to design the hair, to develop the hair. And, and, and any woman who has a very ornate hairdo implies that she also has power and money because she couldn't do this hair to herself. And that, that was true in, in the courts of, of France as well. And when they, and they, the elaborate heritage would turn out to be, turn out to be wigs, that also had to, had to imply a, a poor, 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 poor person could not do that. I think it was in the 70s that the beehive was very popular. What do you know about the beehive, especially about its health aspects? Throughout history, the character of hair has changed. And in men, I mean, there was a time when men had had shorter hair and then longer hair. And each each, each generation has its own has its own hairdo. And, and one thing that's for sure that the the generations differ in their hairstyle and their music preference. And mm -hmm. that that goes on. There's a, one example which I illustrate in the book is the, the experience of the beard. And a guy named Joseph Palmer, who was a abolitionist and a, and a veteran of the War of 1812, and he uh, had a long beard, which he was prided himself in the early 1800s, but a Apparently, the community did not think beard, a long beard was really nice, like they made react to your long hair. And, but they took it on, the group of the men took it upon themselves to cut off his beard. 
And as he was approached, he drew a knife and he fought with them, and he was put in jail for his beard. Uh, this the story goes that Palmer has the last laugh because by the mid 1900s, even the presidents were wearing beards. As Abraham Lincoln took on a beard in, in his presidency as well as so the, other, the later presidents. So so the fashions fashions change now with regard to long hair. I mean, long hair. The Romans uh, described barbarians as people with long hair, people with who didn't have kempt hair. But but the Roman view at that time, the person who who have shorter hair and combed hair was more civilized than the person with long hair. And that that. There's this there's a story in the Sumerian story of of uh, Gilgamesh, which uh, which I, I thought was really pertinent here. Well, and Gilgamesh needs a friend, and so the gods decide they will make a friend for him. And the friend they make is a very wild guy. He lives in the woods, and he has hair all over his body, long long hair. The the shepherds in the area get really t- frightened of this guy. This guy's name is Enkaidu. They get frightened of the guy, and they say and they call up the king, and the king says, "Okay, we will tame him." And they tame him by finding a, a woman who makes love with him. And after a week of making love, he, this wild man, Enkaidu, claims himself now. And now he's 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 settled. He's going to be he's a settled guy. And what do you, what does he do? He cuts his hair. He's now human and cuts <laughs> his hair. So that as an example of of this concept, the Sumerian concept of short hair being civilized, long hair being not. There's another another interesting example of that of when the, when the Westerners went to China in the in the 1600s and introduced themselves for trade. They were trying to trade. The Chinese weren't quite certain that the Westerners were human because they were so hairy. And that the the Asian body is is very less much less hairy than the than the the, the Western body, and they had long hair, very hairy body, and for, as far as they were concerned, the monkeys have lots of hair, humans don't. It's a very difficult time for them to realize. So we're what I guess the point I'm trying to make is that that their cultural differences, the cultural concepts of what hair means. And establishing that meaning is very difficult between two cultures. People who study animal behavior also have that same problem. And the, in the ornithologists have the challenge of de- deciding what any any feather pattern has on bird behavior. And they said this is, this is a very difficult uh, experiment to hand handle. And what they do is they try to establish the meaning by the behavior before and after the exposure of this pattern. But we have the same thing with animals. And we have some objective evidence suggesting that the, the lion's mane, the, the male mane, is very influential to the female. The bigger the mane, the more attractive the female. We have some evidence of that. There are messages that humans send, which that, that, that hair, hair sends, which can be uh, quantitative, but but they're often it's very culturally loaded. It's very difficult to separate the cultural pattern, and these messages, if they're not culturally consonant, if, if the the two are not in the same culture, can be really really destructive. If if a person with very short hair goes into a neighborhood, either a very orthodox religious neighborhood or or Muslim neighborhood in in the Middle East, that can be problems, and that's not understood why someone would cut hair. I just not understood. So the the um, the differences are marked, and, and we have a lot of understanding to do as we understand one another. You know, you mentioned about beards a little while ago, but and that reminds me of one of the other things you mentioned in the book is the difference between hair on the same person, like your hair on your head is different than your hair in your beard. It, it is, it is, and uh, and there must be evolutionary reasons for it. I mean, the beard, hair on the beard is a very tough hair, much tougher than elsewhere on the body, and that hair in your beard is usually very curly, and the color varies, and the, while well, the hair on the top of the head is is, is softer, and both, but the hair on the on the cheek is is hormone sensitive, male hormone sensitive, and the, the hair on the top, the side of the head is not. 
So their their hairs differ from site to site, and they play probably play different roles. I mean, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have there's an interesting problem when when a woman has problems with the eyebrow. One of the ways we have of treating hair loss is to transplant hair from the top of the head to the eyebrow. But then she's got to cut the hair. Yeah, so the hair continues to grow <laughs> like a scalp. So the hairs stay. They they know who they are, and if you move them, they stay who they are. So hairs differ from site to site. And um, that, that's something we need to more understand better. Also talking about some of the social aspects of hair, uh, coming into the, where we are right now, what can you tell when you put hair under the microscope about things like uh, the usage of drugs? That's one of the things that I've recently read about several different times, that now you, know, you can f- learn a lot about a oh. person from their hair. Hair, because it was hair is made of cells, and because it's made of cells, it has DNA. So you can take Neanderthal hair, if they can find it, and, and do DNA analysis from Neanderthal. So hair is a very, very stable substance, very difficult to break down. Hair, hair grows from the bottom of the hair, hair follicle, bottom of the hair follicle, which is in the skin, and it, it takes up nourishment from the blood, and those cells then move up into the hair shaft. Then those cells dry out. They become fossilized. But as they become fossilized and dry out, they keep in them what they took from the blood. So if you're exposed to some toxin, a toxin, those cells will grab the toxin and move out. Forensic examiners now are using hair to establish people exposed to toxins, or if people are taking drugs, because the drugs will be incorporated in the hair as well, that the hair moves out of the skin surface about a half inch per month. You can establish when the person was exposed to the toxin or when the person took the drug from the length of the hair shaft itself. And so crimes have been, crimes have been solved during that. And there's an example I have in the book of a, of a, of a woman who felt she was raped, and uh, she, didn't, she wasn't certain of it. She thought she was raped. And when the, the ferret examiner looked at her hair, he found that there was, there was a narcotic in her hair, and it turned up. At the, at the time, about, about an inch, inch of hair, it turned out just about the time she claimed she was raped and, and went, back to the, went back to the accuser, and the accuser admitted that he had done that. But, but it, this is one example, and so it can be used for, for, athletic, for athletic. The hair holds these, holds these compounds. It can be used in it's a very useful method of, of retaining compounds. The, the rest of the body, I mean, the urine loses it very quickly, and other tissues walk it out, wash it out, but the hair shaft holds it in for as long as if so if my hair is six years old, and I think that's what you said, roughly yeah. six years, would you be able to go back to the, the longest hair, say come up maybe an inch or so from the bottom, and analyze a lot of things about what's happened to me or somebody else with that kind yes. of length? You could. Yes. I mean, it depends on the stuff. I mean, if you're, if you're close to alcohol, alcohol is not going to stay in there. But drugs would, would, other kind of drugs would stay in there. Yes. So the answer is yes. And you would section up the hair shaft. And in the people who have done the study, they section the hair shaft in little spinny segments and do analysis on each segment. And then hmm. they can work back to when, when, when the exposure was or when. when that's, so it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool. Well, take me in, in, into the future a little bit. I know one of the things I mentioned in the introduction here that you're involved with the uh, uh, follicle regeneration. I'm not sure. I think I know what that means. But what is the future of hair? The future of hair is like the future of medicine itself is really positive. The, the, the challenges in hair, though, I, I think one of the challenges, and that's what I was wor- I've been working with, is to generate new hair follicles and to put them where they're needed. And this is the whole, the whole aspect, part of the aspect of regenerative medicine. I mean, in medicine, if you have trouble with your kidney or your lung or your heart, it would be nice to be able to regenerate a whole new structure and put it in, in your body and then go on from there. And that's true for the hair follicle as well. One takes stem cells, which are cells that can develop 
an organ or can develop a hair follicle, puts them in tissue culture that's in a test tube, and then grow a hair follicle from that. Now, this, these are futuristic studies, but that's the kind of thing we've been working on. One of, the, one of the treatments for male pattern balding now is to transplant hair from the side of the head, which those hair follicles never go bald, to the top of the head where the follicles are bald. And, and what one, so one does that very effectively, and that's a very effective, but after a while, the side of the head starts looking like a bald area. <laughs> so that's not good. And so what, so what you want to do is to be able to generate new hair follicles instead of taking, keep taking follicles from the side, generate new follicles to put on the top. And that's, that's, that was one of the goals we're doing. But I think the lessons we're learning with the hair follicle will be applicable to other stem cell systems like these more important life and death um, organ systems. Now, you did have a section in the book about the stem cell as it pertains to hair. I thought that was very interesting, too. The stem cell was found mm-hmm. in a place it wasn't expected to. Stem cells are cells which have the ability to regenerate a hair follicle, but they also, when they divide, the two daughter cells becomes a hair follicle, and the other one stays and rests as a stem cell. These stem cells, that's what a stem cell means. It's the cell that has the ability to generate a new structure, but leaves one, one daughter down in case it's needed again. When a hair follicle grows, all the growth of, cell, of the cells divide at the bottom of it. All the cells are dividing, and it turns out the stem cells weren't there. And it was a surprise finding. There were, there were, the stem cells were further up. Mm-hmm. Another point with regard to the hair follicle is the hair follicle has cell division, which is, is, which is one of the most rapid in the body. It's growing very rapidly. It takes a lot of cells to make a hair shaft. And so, so the hair follicle is growing very rapidly. Lots of, each cell divides twice a day. And, and that's true also for cells in the gut and the cells in the bone marrow. And so patients who have chemotherapy, who have toxins to get rid of cancers, have problems in those three areas. The chemotherapy hits at rapidly dividing cells. And so it's the, it's the hair follicle and the gut and the bone marrow that's affected. So the patient with chemotherapy suffers from, from irritation of the gut, uh, suffers from anemia or an infection because it doesn't have any, not bone marrow, and then suffers from hair follicle loss or hair loss which is a transient. It, it, it only lasts as long as the drug is being given, but it's very destructive. It's, very, it's socially very disturbing because hair sends messages, and the messages of health is very important for social communication. I guess I would re- be remiss, even though we've spent our, most of our time talking about other thing, things other than just style and that sort of thing. Tell me in just a few minutes, if you can, about the products that people have used for eons and eons to work with hair. Do they make any difference? I think you're implying products that stimulate hair to grow. No, I'm just and talking that, about the stuff you see where they shampoo this and they style with that. Well, that's a whole other aspect of hair cosmetics, and mm-hmm. I don't dwell into that. I didn't want to do that because I thought the other other authors and other textbooks right. do that much better. But with regard to healthy hair growth, growth yeah. I mean, there, there are a couple of compounds that should, which, which physicians use today which do affect hair growth. Like one is minoxyl, the other is called finasteride. Those do affect hair follicle growth. But the most critical thing we found over the years is a good diet, healthy diet, plenty of iron, plenty of rest, and a good, easy life. Stress will affect hair follicle growth. A major mm. stress event will affect hair follicle yeah, growth. So, right. so I guess the bottom line is to, is to live a good life and be healthy and your hair will follow. Well, I do have to ask you one more question that I can think of that affects all of us in one way or the other. Curly or straight hair? What do you do if you have one and you want the other? The, <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what people do now is to break the structure of the hair shaft and reform it. Hairs come in different shapes. So hairs are long filaments, so when they're completely round, 
they are straight and firm, and that's very typical of an Asian hair, which is very straight and round. It's very hard, very firm hair, folks, straight and round. Uh, hair, which is very curly and kinky, is flat, and so it bends upon itself. And a hair which is, which is more typical of a caucasoid hair is, is more oval-shaped, and it shows a, a, a slight wave to it. If you want a straight hair, what you do is you break the connections of the hair, and that means breaking the uh, chemical bond, the sulfur bonds it's called, break the chemical bonds, straighten the hair out, and reform the bonds. And that one can do that with either by straightening hair or curling hair, depending how you hold it as you're bringing the bonds back. As you re- let, the, let the hair reform, if you're holding it flat, it'll, it'll be straight. If you hold it curling, curling with a curling iron, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be curled. The trade-off, though, is that when you do that, you change the, the health of the hair shaft itself. The hair shaft is more friable, and um, you lose the normal elasticity of the hair, which is, that's a trade-off. But we've we got to do better. They're beginning to understand what causes the hair to curl and what, what causes it to be straight, and, and these are involved growth factors. And, and in the future, this is another change we can look forward to, is that we'll be able to manipulate the hair much better in the future as we understand how hair grows. We've been talking this hour on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow about hair, and my special guest has been Dr. Kurt Stan, whose recent book, Hair, A Human History, gives us an even deeper historical understanding as we've been talking about here today. Where can the book uh, be found, uh, Dr. Stan? It's all the Amazon. It's all any bookstore. It's all over. It's being translated in many different languages as well. Yeah, it's a very good read, but there's a whole lot in it uh, that we couldn't even really get into in our discussion today. Dr. Stan has over 30 years of experience studying here, and he was a professor of pathology and dermatology at Yale University School of Medicine, and for 10 years was the director of skin biology at Johnson & Johnson. I think, and as you've been listening to the program, you can tell that Dr. Kurt Stan really knows hair. Dr. Stan, thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks. Thanks to you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking about this. I'll have a link to the, his book on our website, too, at KUAR.org. He has joined us from uh, Princeton, New, New Jersey. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion today and even learned several things about hair that we never really think to talk about. You can hear the program as well as others that we do here on KUAR at KUAR.org. And as I said, I'll post this on our website there. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is a production of KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas Little Rock. You can find us online and send your comments to ytt at kur.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.